So there's a show. There's a show. Have you heard of the show called Naked and Afraid? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's on. It was on. I don't know if it's on anymore. It was on like a, a major network television. If it sounds... So, so what they do is two people get thrown in the wilderness naked and they have to survive. Um, and, but don't worry, they blur out all the bits and pieces. So, so it's not quite like you would, like you would think. It's not exactly a, a super racy show. Um, but anyways... Uh, it's, it's really interesting. I've only watched, like, I think one episode or something like that. But, um, but it's really interesting to see how human dynamics shift. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've seen it. Um, but it's really, really, they're odd people that do this. Super odd people. Like, no offense to them. They're just very odd and very unique. We'll say unique, not odd. Odd can have negative connotations. But they are super unique people who decide that they would like to do this. But it's strange to see what happens when people are forced to be seen like just as they are, just everything out there, right? Um, it kind of changes the dynamics of how people interact pretty quickly. So at the beginning, it's like all weird, and then like, eventually they're like, all right, this is the situation, this is who we are, let's move on. And uh, so it's really fascinating to see what happens when people have no choice but to be exposed, right? It's, and it's, it's really, really fascinating when you think of that in light of the origin story of uh, Judeo-Christian faith, of the story of Genesis, where, uh, where God creates humans, and, uh, and they're naked, but they're not afraid. Um, in fact, they're, they're naked, and, uh, and they feel no shame. Uh, in verse 25 of chapter 2, we're not actually hanging out in Genesis this morning, but um, in, in uh, verse 25 chapter 2, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So they're out here fully exposed, everything, everything just kind of hanging out physically and we're supposed to see emotionally and spiritually. And then what happens is you know the story, right? They eat from the tree that they, were, they disobey um, God and what God instructed them to do. And in verse 7 of chapter 3, the eyes of both of them were opened when they had knowledge, this knowledge of the tree of good and evil, when they all of a sudden kind of took autonomy of, I'm going to make my own choices of right and wrong. One of the realities of entering into that world was that all of a sudden they noticed that they were naked, or that they were naked, right? And so when they realized it, they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings and they hid. All right? So, so all of a sudden... They realize, oh my goodness, we're naked. And they go and they, they run away and hide because God is coming. And so God comes, the Lord walks through the garden, and he's like, where are you guys? What's the story? It's, it's written in a very kind of unique, beautiful storytelling kind of a way. And, uh, and he says, where are you? And the man answered, I, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And, and God's response is, well, who told you you were naked? What's the deal with that? Because God knew that they were naked from the beginning, right? Like, this was not a revelation to God. God was like, who told you that? I mean, yeah, you're naked, but what's, what, what changed all of a sudden now, right? And then this is, it opens the door of like, you know, have you eaten, right? And so, so this whole story, the reason that I tell it is that it's really, really interesting to see the movement from being naked and unafraid or naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed, Okay, but interestingly, that was not the disobedience itself. That was just a result of all of this. And what God does is he does not 
increase their shame in the midst of this story. In fact, the only time nakedness comes up again is in the next chapter, or at the end of chapter 3, where we just get this little statement that says, there, there were consequences for, for their sin, right? They, they were not able to be close to the tree of life because then they would have eaten from the tree of life, then they would have been able to be just like the gods is the language here at this point, which means that they would have been able to live forever with autonomy separate from God, which would, not, which would have been a nightmare. We see still how it's a nightmare when people try to do that. Um, and so, and so, so there were consequences. But the whole clothing thing, what we get in verse 21 of chapter 3 is that the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. So originally, even in the midst of their disobedience, one of the ways that God deals with their shame and their nakedness is by clothing them. The first thing he does before he sends them away. Uh, I think this is really, really fascinating that God's response to the embarrassment of a human feeling exposed is actually to cover their shame and to say, why... Who told you you were naked? And to continue to, to give them an opportunity to heal the divide. If they were going to be ashamed and afraid, he says, well, let me give you clothes, and that way you can come back toward me. That way, this will no longer be the hindrance for you, even if you feel this way when you're naked. It's an interesting start to the story. And Eastern cultures all have really high values of, of community and, and the history of, of um, not bearing shame. You don't want, in, in Eastern cultures, you do, it, it's incredibly important and incredibly high that you don't want to dishonor other people. You don't want to dishonor those um, who are above you, who are in authority. Um, and the worst thing that you could do is bring shame to your family or to your culture. So we see um, in a lot of Eastern cultures, I know that the story of Mulan is problematic in a number of ways, but I, I do love um, part of the story that uh, it mixes a lot of cultures, and so there's sometimes some, some issues with that. However, uh, I think it's really interesting that in the story of Mulan, which they made like a live thing that um, my son and I watched last year and found pretty, pretty moving, um, but, uh, but one, of the, one of the elements of this is the song, do you remember the song, You'll Bring Honor to Us All? So Mulan's getting like her hair done and so that she can be a good bride. And everybody's singing that if, if, you, if you live up to the expectations of the people around you, if you play your role right, you'll bring honor. If you don't, then you'll bring shame to your family. And there is so much fear about bringing shame. And so you see all of these things kind of reflected. We're going to um, go back to that story a little bit because, um, you know, even in certain cultures, to prevent shame, you, people kill themselves because they don't want to bring dishonor to their family by continuing to live as a disappointment. Horribly, horribly painful in some ways. Um, and for, for Mulan there, shame was very simply um, breaking the family rules, disobeying the cultural rules of, of what a woman could do at the time. There's a war, and she wants to uh, defend her family, and uh, her father, instead of her father going because he's aged and not able to, uh, to have good health, she disguises herself. And what, here's the story that, that goes with that. For Mulan, even though there was shame there, she feels drawn to a deeper value than the cultural shame that she would have to walk through if she's exposed. So there's shame, but she says, actually, something's drawing me deeper, and I'm willing to walk through that potential shame. So there's our setup. There's our setup. All right, so it's no surprise that in the Israelite story, there's this massive fear of experiencing shame in any way, in ways that we often don't talk about, right? So look at, look at how some of these psalms and, uh, and Old Testament scriptures 
talk about the concept of how shame is like the worst thing ever. Um, Don't let those who trust you be put to shame because of me, David writes, right? O sovereign Lord of of, of heaven's armies, don't let me cause them to be humiliated. To be humiliated would be worse than death. In, this, in Psalm 35, in anger, it's one of the imprecatory psalms where, where there's so much upset. And God, you know, it's the cursing psalms. Curse my enemies. And the way he calls down curses is saying, bring shame and disgrace. That's like just not usually what we think about when we think about getting someone back. I mean, maybe, but not at this level. Not at like the worst of the worst. You know, humiliate those who want to harm me. Leviticus, God is talking, don't bring shame on my holy name, for I will display my holiness. Don't bring shame. Joshua, then the Lord said, today I've rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. See, slavery wasn't even sin, but it was shame. It was embarrassment. It was a shameful thing to be made into less of a human than who they were designed to be. And so, so God leading them out was actually taking away their shame, right? So they made a monument there. In Isaiah, the Lord will save the people of Israel with eternal salvation throughout, throughout everlasting ages, they will never again be humiliated and disgraced. God is saying, I will not put them to shame, right? Same thing in the next verse. Fear, fear not then in Isaiah 54, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid. So over and over and over, we get this, this story. And in, sorry if you can't see this very well, we'll do our best. But, um, but the word shame in Hebrew all right, um, is, is all about, um, it's a physical word that's like about being disfigured, okay? So shame means to be made ugly or to be disfigured, all right? Note the made. Shame is to be made ugly. Not to be ugly, but to be made ugly. It's to be an object of ridicule, okay? So, so the... Um, so, so I'm laying all of this out because we're about to talk about the cross. And, uh, and I want you to sit with a world in which shame and honor were of the highest values. It might be difficult to, uh, to connect um, in a more individualistic culture of the West. Our words might be more like accomplishment and failure. Okay? Um, but shame, <laughs> shame has remained for sure. It's just morphed a little bit, right? Because shame, at its core, is rooted in the feeling that you are unsafe. And most of us know what it feels like to be unsafe. To be in a situation where, if I am fully known, I'd be disfigured by others or made ugly. That I am afraid to be at complete rest because it's not a place where I can be exposed. Um, It's like the Genesis story. If we're naked, if we're exposed, if our soul and actions uh, are fully laid out, then we would not be seen as enough, right? We will be a disappointment, or we will not be loved, or we will not be valued. So we find ourselves unsafe with other people around us. That even with God, sometimes we feel like we are unsafe because God sees all of our failures and all of our brokenness. And so what we need to do in this situation is we need to hide, right? Looks like we need to hype. Um, we need to hide. 
And so, so this is what we see the story of humanity over and over and over again. An awareness that I can't be naked. The reality that it's unsafe, and so I begin to hide. And we can't just hide in our houses all day long, so what we end up doing is we end up practicing disguises. We end up learning very well how to look good enough on the outside to not be found out, how to, um, how to make sure that we don't talk about the brokenness in our lives or about the big questions or our weaknesses or our hurts because others may disfigure us. They'll see us as ugly or worthy of looking down on. And again, the fear can be the same with God, even if we know better in our heads. We pray with bumpy, formal words, making sure that our prayers sound holy enough. Um, We constantly grovel. We're quick to talk about how unworthy we are of love, despite Jesus' best efforts over and over again to remind us otherwise. Shame says constantly, you are less. your, Your worst mistake is the sum of your value and all that you are. You will not be loved if you are not, or if you are truly known. This is the story. So we're talking for a few weeks about what it means to be people shaped by the cross and all the different ways um, to understand such an ugly event as one of the most beautiful events in all of history. And so we we are, are looking at how the cross reveals God's love in so many different ways. But you can't really talk about the cross unless you understand the role of shame in all of it. And it's something that we gloss over because it's not always prominent in our, in our cultural understanding, um, where sin, instead of shame, often ends up taking the, uh, the primary role. And there's plenty of that. We're going to talk about that next week. But, um, but the cross's purpose, without question, without question, was to be an instrument of shame. Take a look at what the Roman writer Cicero wrote um, just in kind of the, uh, the generation before Jesus, where, where we see the foundations um, being laid of what this cross had come to, to mean. And he's writing, and he says, he's talking about the cross. It's a most cruel and disgusting punishment. It's a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It's an enormity to flog one, a sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It's impossible to find a word for such an abomination. Let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. In other words, this is such a shameful thing that he shouldn't even be thinking about it or talking about it. No Roman was ever crucified because it was considered the most demeaning, humiliating way to die. Okay? That's why it even happened outside of the city walls. For both Jewish people and Roman people agreed on that because it was such a shameful thing. So New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says this, To die by crucifixion was to plumb the lowest depths of disgrace. Disgrace. It was a punishment reserved for those who were deemed most unfit to live, punishment for those who were subhuman. The point of the cross was to shame somebody, to disfigure them physically and emotionally, to make them ugly, subject them to ridicule. This is why, then, a simple passage like Hebrews 12.2 needs to be sat with and become foundational in our discipleship. All right, and, and the writer of Hebrews is talking about the importance of persevering in our faith. And he says we do this, we persevere by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Some translations say scorning its shame, um, despising its shame. Literally, the word means 
to take the value away of. So to disregard the value of shame. So Jesus on the cross, the writer of Hebrews says, took all that was supposed to be shameful and he took away the power of that shame. He refused to give in to the shame even though he entered into the most shameful of situations that anybody possibly could. He experiences the ultimate shame, which is an innocent person being made to be guilty, exposed, embarrassed. When someone is completely dehumanized and their value is turned into a cheap pawn in someone else's system. But on the cross, something incredible happens, right? While being a part of this culture where shame and honor is so significant, Jesus gets shamed on a cross for sins not even his own, hanging naked, exposed, and he was unashamed. Do you see the beauty of this? The power of shame broken by God himself. So I want to talk about a couple of things um, that Jesus does that helps inform us here um, as, as we think about shame today um, and, and as it gets more personal. The first thing um, is that Jesus bears our shame. That's, it, this is a very big, very basic, very broad understanding. Jesus absorbs the shame on our behalf. This is seen not only on the cross most acutely because Jesus is innocent, but it's seen when Jesus eats with sinners, people who were, who were seen as unfit to be present with other people. Jesus bears their shame by walking with people who are imperfect and saying, I am willing to dwell in relationship with them. In the, in the uh, famous story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, the father waits for his son to come from far away, but his son had already been excommunicated from the family. He had taken the, um, the inheritance that was owed him, that he said was owed him. He had gotten rid of it. He had spent it all. And in coming back, when the father receives him, the father receives him as an adopted new son into the family. The significance about that is that the, um, the uh, inheritance that he had already wasted would be coming back. He would get another inheritance by getting that ring on his finger, becoming a part of the family. So the father bears the shame of a son who leaves, squanders everything, and then comes back and is going to cost the father even more. And the father willingly receives, in, in this society, it would have been so shameful. So shameful that I was talking to one of you, I think it was Sean and I were talking about, like when a son would do something like this, the other elders of the village would go out to the edge of the village in a, in a simple little um, kind of a ritual to essentially say, this person does not belong to this family or this town at all anymore. And that was to clear the father's name. So the father welcomes him back and bears the shame of the son and says, I am unafraid to be associated with him. There's beauty there. Um, and it, it's not just bearing, but it's removing too. Jesus removes, he experiences the consequences of shame on the cross. And, and we believe that there's this mystical transference in the midst of it. Jesus died and we die with him. So by receiving our brokenness and doing away with its power, we have been seen fully, we have been restored fully, and we are still loved. So there's no shame left. As Romans 10 says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So Jesus doesn't just bear our shame, but he removes it. There's such beauty here. But there's something that we don't often talk about either in, in regards to the power of the cross in this way. And that is that Jesus stands in solidarity with the shamed. Consider those on the cross with him. With whom he says to the one who cries out that you will be with me in paradise today. Um, consider 
what it looks like to people who have been stripped of their dignity to have a Christ, a Messiah who was also stripped of his. There is liberation for those who have been shamed, often of no fault of their own, because the God of the universe relates to their pain and dehumanization. By this very act, he liberates them from its power. Consider a kid in, in a high school cafeteria, ninth grader. He's smaller than others. Um, not super athletic, doesn't have a lot of close friends, kind of sticks to himself, fairly quiet. He becomes an easy target for teenagers trying to bolster their own worth by cutting other people down. So one of the older kids decides to have a little fun with him, and he walks up in the lunchroom, and he walks beside him, and he takes his carton of milk, and he just dumps it on the kid. Now imagine a teacher on the other side of the room seeing that. And instead of going and racing after the guy that did it, the first thing he does is he walks up to this young boy, and he opens his own carton of milk, and he dumps it on his head. And it comes down, it spills, and it stains his tie, covers his shirt, and he stands right beside that boy, and he's changed the narrative completely. Because that boy who was once isolated and embarrassed and exposed now has somebody standing right with him, relating to him, stealing the power of the embarrassment and the shame because he's right there doing it the same. Someone above him saying, I'm with you. It changes the story. It changes the experience. It changes the level of isolation and the power of what shame can do. And so this is the image of the atonement that we look at today. A God who, who sits with all of those who have been abused unfairly. Who sits with all of those who have been treated as less than human because of any number of factors. Of all of those who have suffered because they've lost things of no fault of their own. Family losses health struggles, emotional disabilities, ridicule, whatever. They look and they say that God is not so far removed from me that he cannot relate. And so when Jesus stands in solidarity with those who have been shamed, he actually takes the power of shame away in our lives and it is so incredibly beautiful and it's liberating. So hear me, you're not alone. Your shame, your isolation is not beyond the experience of Jesus. He has joined in it in order to heal and to restore. This is the work of the cross, friends. And Jesus restores honor to God's name also through this act of supreme love. This is one of the most beautiful things. You know, in, in Philippians 2, we get this. Therefore, when he, Jesus, when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Humbled himself. And therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor. Jesus walked through the shame, and therefore, God restored the honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and it continues on. There is something beautiful. Sometimes you have to walk through shame willingly to move through it into honor. Um, back to that story of, of Mulan um, that, that uh, I knew so well when I was young. Um, Mulan is shamed for entering the imperial army as a female, right? But she ends up saving her people from the Huns and revealing that the entire system that poured shame on her was actually flawed. She walks into the shame, 
in order to reveal its misguided power and then eventually is restored to incredible honor. Right? In, in kind of an inverse way, it's the story of Jesus walking into the deepest shame willingly but emerging on the other side, exposing the system of condemnation in our world for what it is and doing away with the power permanently. It's really beautiful. It changes everything on this side of it. So there's, there's such beauty there. Finally then, we, Jesus doesn't just restore honor, but we actually enter into the honor of Jesus as members of his new family. Um, Galatians 3 says that you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and all who have been united with him, with Christ in baptism, have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. Putting on new clothes. We are fundamentally changed, and we are brought into the world of Jesus and the unity and the family of Jesus in a new way. Um, it's, I, I just love this image of being welcomed in because of how Jesus has gone before us, done away with the power of shame, now says, come and join me. I've already experienced all of it. There's nothing left for you to experience. Some of you have been made to feel shame because of mistakes or because of no mistakes at all. Some of you are ashamed because of the brokenness that your family's gone through. Some because you didn't live up to your own expectations. Sometimes you feel shame because your kids didn't grow up into the people that you wanted them to. Sometimes you feel shame because your life is not impacting the world enough. Sometimes because you can't shake the struggles that Christians are supposed to have under control by now and victory over. Hear me. Jesus has borne your shame. Jesus has given you the honor of being a part of God's family freely. There is no more shame. So step into the peace of belonging in Christ and walk toward that new life and liberation freely. It's beauty. Okay, one final element about shame that I think is really crucial because there's a passage that we often don't think about in, in light of this, but uh, in the early, um, in the disciples' hearing of it, absolutely it would have been a part of this. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. You've heard this passage before, many of you. So I want to look at this just briefly in light of what it means that the cross was an instrument of shame. Don't be, a, don't be afraid to carry your cross, Jesus says, despite the shame that it might seemingly bring. Because here's the deal. When Jesus calls us to carry our crosses, it means that we may embrace certain activities in which we might be shamed for by an outside world. Like, quite simply, admitting our brokenness opens us up to the shame of a world that doesn't have space for that. Um, believing in things like our need for the rescue of God and the resurrection, changing things, and, and the Holy Spirit being within us. These things can all bring shame from an outside world. In a, in a world, it's sometimes shameful actually to even value other people above yourself, Right? You're, you're, you're walking countercultural to the world's value systems, right? To be a servant to others, to desire to serve, you will often sometimes even get criticized for because you need to show some dignity. Make them do their own work. Whatever that looks like. We can be shamed when we don't find security in our possessions. It can feel like a shameful journey to be okay with being a bit poor and embracing the poor as having value. 
there's shame in living any time that's countercultural in any way that's countercultural to the world's value system. Being hit and not choosing to hit back in response can feel like carrying a cross of shame. Believing in the power of prayer can feel like we carry a cross of shame. But Jesus endured the shame and made a mockery of it, and so it has no further power. When we can live freely and imperfectly, there is such beauty in walking with, with Jesus. Nothing in this world can disfigure what God has made beautiful. Our worth and our value has been secured, friends. So as a cross-shaped people, we do willingly carry our crosses of sacrificial love, but without the crippling weight of the shame that can come from it. I remember a, uh, a friend telling me, who was a part of Life Path early before she moved away many, many years ago, she came and she said, why are Christians the least free people I've ever met? Why are Christians so heavy all the time if we believe in a resurrection and that Jesus has actually come to save us from the same powers that they feel that they seem so stressed out about all the time? And I, it's always sat with me because I think sometimes we don't truly understand what God has done on the cross, what has been revealed, how Jesus has conquered the power of shame. So when we walk with our crosses, we walk without the crippling weight of shame, and instead it's a light burden of living with Jesus um, walking alongside us and with a community of love that's surrounding us. So we have been set free, friends. Simple encouragement. Let's pray. Lord, the, I just invite you, we invite you right now to just to take this space and to use it in like a real way to help form us in some new ways. Maybe if there are some areas of um, brokenness where we're, we still feel tied up that you could burn the chains away and the ropes away that bind us so that we might feel light in a new way and feel the beautiful hope of this whole story.